beginning, yeah, before beginning this retreat, uh, one student consulted her newspaper's astrology column. She wanted to receive the finest advice for her retreat. So uh, this is what she read for her horoscope. It said, for the next four weeks, now that's unusual. It doesn't usually say that in the newspaper horoscope. For the next four weeks, you'll see things unravel and then reappear in new formations. Be patient, and more importantly, have faith. I don't know what newspaper she reads, but that was really pretty good advice. And uh, this is the second talk on faith where I'm going to focus on the aspect of devotion. It feels a little bit like Groundhog Day because I'm going to cough. But I really thought each week that the next week I would not be coughing. So much for our expectations. But um, there it didn't happen. So. Uh, so I want to just talk to you about why devotion is important in the practice and how it's really what our refuge is. It's really the same thing. Um, it's not an emotion, although we can experience it as an emotion. It really is what um, taking refuge means. And, and this inspiration of devotion, of course, brings faith, which is one of our beloved seven factors. The more we look deeply into any one of the factors, the more all the others appear, which when you're trying to write a talk can be um, difficult to organize them, but uh, I think it's going to come out all right. Uh, so the wisdom of these seven factors, not the intellectual wisdom, of course, but the panya and pali or <coughs> prajna in Sanskrit uh, is not, um, you know, it's not an intellectual understanding, but it can blossom through different means. And tonight we're going to explore devotion as a path to wisdom. It's a big part of most of the world religions. And in Buddhism, we don't see devotion as a path to somewhere else uh, through devotion to something else, but as a path leading here. Uh, and it's not about a belief, it's really a method, an upaya, a skillful means in the practice. And when we do feel devotion as an emotion, it's a very uh, vibrant and clear, um, uh, it's, it's very uh, strong, actually. It's a powerful feeling. And um, it can be a very strong and deep experience. And if we can relax into it and just let our mind be in a pretty open-hearted, relaxed state and look deeply, we actually may be able to see very clearly because devotion comes to us as a kind of grace or blessing. And from the Buddhist point of view, blessings are not so much the... It's not so much a question of receiving something from outside as from giving or offering from our side, giving up our tightness, our defenses, um, and opening ourselves up. And it's, I talked about, um, I can't remember how many talks ago, but Kuan Yin, the statue, not that posture, that beautiful Kuan Yin in her posture of royal ease, but the standing Kuan Yin with the vase that she holds, the vase of cool water. And the um, devotion and blessing, it's like that. It's something uh, like that she would, it has that feeling of her holding that vase of, of blessing. And for those of us who open our hearts um, to her with compassion, then there's that feeling of outpouring um, the Tibetans talk about waves of blessing, of grace, of inspiration, just pouring out like a waterfall or a spring, like the creek after the rain, and like a wave that you could catch, you know, and it carries you um, out beyond yourself into a kind of self-forgetting that is not 
mindlessness um, at all, but it's, it's a bridge to the universal or absolute or the big mind. Um, they say in the Tibetan tradition that one teardrop of devotion erases five eons of bad karma. So um, that's good news. So ultimately, devotion returns us to our own deep being, which is really, of course, what we are uh, devoted to. And and then I'll tell you some stories. Um, My first Dharma teacher was a deceptively jolly, very compact uh, Korean man, Zen master, head of the Chogye School of Korean Buddhism, uh, his name is Venerable Sung San, and we called him Sansanim. And then after he turned 60, by the custom, we called him De Sansanim. De is a prefix meaning great. He constantly encouraged us to put it all down. He said, put it all down. Put it all down. To drop our self-inflicted suffering and believe in ourselves, to trust our true nature. And... He was a very strong-willed, this strong-willed, gray-robed monk. um, He literally encouraged us. He infused us with courage. And uh, he taught us about dedication, vow, devotion. He talked about tri-mind. He said, you fall down a hundred times and you get up a hundred and one times. And this is, that was his version of... um, having confidence or faith in the practice over and over, he cheerfully would admonish us, don't check, don't check, don't check. Don't check your mind. You know, don't doubt. He was saying, don't doubt yourself. You know, don't come back and edit or wonder or don't doubt. And um, the other thing that he would say is, only go straight. And then he would say later, he started saying, he didn't say this to us right away, but later, I guess when he thought we could take it, he said, only go straight 10,000 years. So just, you know, if you think your retreat is over in a few days, um, no, 10,000 years, only go straight into this great doubt of spiritual inquiry, um, this great don't know the mystery of being. And he was expansive and visionary and uncompromising. And this Asian monk who had never heard of feminism, he did notice that we young women were more insecure and some of us more prone to checking ourselves. We were less confident than the guys. And he, um, he would muse aloud to me in his New English, when I would present my koan to him and he'd say, you, Susie, Becky, many checking, many checking, why this? Uh, You're like a fluorescent light, you know, pausing before it goes on. Be like an electric light. Uh, Just do it. Have great faith. And, you know, his enthusiasm and his energy and his own devotion, 108 bows every morning with us, and, you know, it was contagious. And one night in a Dharma talk, a student asked him, what is great faith? And this was his answer. He held up his little finger and he said, do you see this? And she said, yes. He said, that is great faith. I know, you're not sure if you should laugh or get it or, you know, what. He's talking about trusting your perceptions, trusting experience, trust in experience. As John said in his beautiful talk on faith, faith comes in confirmation in trusting experience. Like electricity, unseen, yet it lights your path. This is from uh, Nisargadatta. We seem to be loving to quote him, this retreat. He says, increase and widen your desires till nothing but reality can fulfill them. 
It's not desire that's wrong, but it's narrowness and smallness. Desire is devotion. By all means, be devoted to the real, the infinite, the internal heart of being. Transform desire into love and devotion. In the time of the Buddha, the squirrel's sanctuary was a place um, where the Buddha's cousin and lifelong attendant, Ananda, was living, where the squirrels especially like to hang out. In, it's a part of the bamboo grove, which you can still go and see. And the squirrels went there because they knew they would be free from harm and from fear, like the deer and the turkeys here at Spirit Rock, the lizards, and even the worms. <laughs> Thanks to the worm bodhisattva among us. Actually, um, you know, refuge is a path. It's a direction. It's an invisible trajectory. Uh, it's not a fixed place like even Spirit Rock or the Bamboo Grove. And we, like the squirrels, come to Dharma practice to find a refuge uh, to a place where we'll be free of fear and suffering. Um, maybe the suffering of a familiar home or a place that became unworkable for us. We're looking for refuge um, from something that has become unlivable. And it might be just, you know, our mind house, uh, the home to our familiar habits and ruts and patterns. and Or it might be um, a country that we have to leave or an addiction or a relationship uh, from which we actually have to flee for our lives, becoming refugees. But whatever it is, what's most essential is to have the courage to set out, to leave that familiar place and uh, set out into the unknown, to walk a path of compassionate awareness and presence, this path of dharma, and it's not, as we keep saying, it's not a path to somewhere else, it's a path to here. And you've all walked this path with such great sincerity during this retreat, you know this. You know how to do this too. What the Buddha taught his heart disciple Ananda right before he died, um, he taught him about how to keep the practice alive after his own passing. And our retreat is passing away. So what the Buddha taught Ananda can be, it can help you, it can help us keep the practice alive um, when we leave this protected place. Ananda asked the Buddha shortly before the Buddha died, exactly how would they maintain the harmony and strength of the Sangha? How would they go on without his presence? And the Buddha taught, quote, the six qualities that once practiced create love and respect and lead to helpfulness, concord, that means um, harmonious getting along, non-dispute, and unity. And these, six, these things are um, acts of metta, loving kindness, and I think devotion is, can be a form of metta in body, speech, and mind, in public and in private, toward our companions in the holy life. Um, that's for us, each other, all those whose lives we touch. The completion or culmination of our metta is the expression of kind devotion in the world. And I've said so many times that your tenderness and compassion um, towards the many beings who live, who inhabit your heart, who live inside and who live outside, um, this is the activity of metta. Each time you do something caring, supportive, um, helpful for yourselves, opening the door for each other, keeping tucked into ourselves, holding an umbrella for somebody else, slowing down as we walk around, especially now that the mind may just be beginning to speed up a little bit. All these things can express our kind devotion to the practice and 
to the Sangha and don't, don't minimize the importance of these gestures. This is from Taktung Rinpoche. Devotion and compassion are at the heart of the path. Traditionally, it's said that one should have devotion toward enlightened beings and compassion toward unenlightened beings. And these are like the wings of a bird and together allow us to fly into the sky of natural wisdom. And then he goes on to say, sometimes people will try to use the methods, but they won't have any success after years of diligent effort. Why is this? It's because techniques cannot liberate. If we reduce the path to methods, then we have a very narrow mind where enlightenment becomes a thing which we can maybe obtain or even capture by our techniques. But really, he says, the techniques are a magnifying glass through which we focus the wisdom rays of devotion and compassion. Here, when we enter the retreat, uh, there's a prayer wheel. And uh, the Tibetan prayer wheels are their devotional devices for spreading um, spiritual blessings and well-being. And there's these rolls of thin paper, many, many, many copies of the mantra, Om Mani Padme Hung in Sanskrit, and Om Mani Peme Hung, Tibetans say. And they're wound around the axle in this protective container, and then they're spun around and around, and they can be turned by wind or water or heat. And um, His Holiness, the Dalai Lama, said that having the mantra on your computer on your hard drive works the same devotional magic as a prayer wheel. (laughs) Since a computer's hard disk spins hundreds of thousands of times per hour and it contains many copies of the mantra, anyone who wants to can turn their computer into a prayer wheel. You can see me after the retreat. Um, And the Tibetans believe that saying this mantra over and over um, out loud or to oneself is like a metta phrase or a compassion phrase or, you know, it it, um, invokes the powerful inspiration and blessings of um, compassion. And this is a story. Um, A devoted meditator after years and years of concentrating on a particular mantra had attained enough insight to begin teaching. And he wasn't the most humble student, but his teachers thought, you know, he really had a good understanding and it would be all right. So a few, he taught successfully for a few years and he really um, didn't so much feel he needed to learn anything new, but he heard about a fantastic hermit and he had to go see him. Now, this hermit lived in the middle of a lake. So... um, (coughs) Excuse me. (coughs) He lived alone on an island in the middle of the lake, so uh, the Dharma teacher had to hire a boat to to go out and visit him, and the hermit received him, and they drank some simple tea made of herbs, and and, um, the hermit... Uh, oh, so the meditator asked the hermit, what about, you know, what is your practice? What is your spiritual practice? And the hermit said, I have a mantra, which I just say over and over. And, and um, that's really, I don't really have a spiritual practice. I just say the mantra over and over. And, and so the meditator asked him about the mantra. And then he was, this is the Dharma teacher. He was very pleased and because it turned out the hermit was using the same mantra he was using. And, but when the hermit said the mantra out loud, the visiting Dharma teacher was horrified because he was saying it wrong. And what's wrong, said the hermit. And he said, I don't know how to tell you this, but you're actually pronouncing it incorrectly. And the hermit said, oh dear, you know, this is terrible. How should I say it? And so uh, the Dharma teacher gave him the correct pronunciation and the hermit was very grateful. And then he asked to be left alone so that he could get started on it right away. So uh, the Dharma teacher you know, got in the boat and they were leaving and as the 
boatman was rowing the boat across the lake. He was feeling quite uh, pleased with himself, and he thought, this is great, because now the old man, you know, at least he'll get it right a little bit before he dies. He'll have a chance to do it right. And then he looked up, and he saw that the boatman was looking really shocked. And so he followed his eyes, and he turned to see the hermit standing very respectfully uh, next to the boat on the water. Um, excuse me, he said, I hate to bother you, but um, I've forgotten the correct pronunciation. Uh, would you please say it again for me? <laughs> well, <laughs> stammered the Dharma teacher, obviously you don't need it. <laughs> and the old man persisted in his polite request, and finally the meditator relented and told him again the way he thought that the mantra should be pronounced. Um, and the old hermit was just saying the mantra very carefully over and over as he walked across the surface of the water back to the island. Sometimes you might think that devotion automatically implies a sense of duality between the devotee and the object of devotion. And that's not the way that we're teaching it, and it's not what the Buddha taught either. And when we, I mean, here in the retreat, you are cultivating devotion. You are doing it in countless ways by, <coughs> by being mindful by pouring attention into the subject of meditation, by just step by step, moment by moment, you know, that sincere attentiveness that we talked about in the concentration talk, this is a form of devotion. And you're doing it by exploring whatever gets in the way of being present and uh, by opening to the uh, big sky mind by beginning again and again by falling down a hundred times and getting up a hundred and one times and this is uh, what Winnicott the wonderful British pediatrician and psychoanalyst called ordinary devotion the natural devotion of the parent who changes diaper after diaper, does feeding after feeding, gets up and goes to work. The natural devotion that we have to our Dharma practice that each and every one of you has manifested for weeks now, you know, just step by step, sitting after sitting, um, and when we cultivate this kind of devotion, we try to remember the meaning, the deeper meaning of the practice, that, <coughs> that whether it's Kuan Yin, Prajnaparamita, the Buddha, Chinrezig, Tara, um, all of these are the embodiment and representation of the unconditional, boundless compassion and wisdom and they're not different from any living being they're not different from you or me in terms of this possibility of um and in moments of clarity you've seen this you have felt this um so please don't view your devotion to the Buddha or the Dharma or the Sangha as, you know, separate, anything separate from your own deepest heart, because it's you. It's you. I mean, where else would you find it? Where else would you find it but in your own deepest heart? As you that you're developing through your devotion to the Dharma, this vast 
vast sky heart of awareness itself. We sometimes call it Dharmakaya. I love that word, the body of the Dharma, this huge uh, universe of Dharmakaya. This is a story that I love. It, it illustrates the point about where blessings really come from. An elderly Tibetan widow's son became quite um, a celebrated trader with India. And of course, since India is the country where the Buddha lived and it uh, was sacred for his, him and his mother and his mother was a very religious woman and she asked him to bring back a sacred relic, uh, something from the Buddha or from a really enlightened master. And so the widow <coughs> tells her son, she just wants to make sure, of course, that he will do this. All my life I worked and sacrificed for you. Now I have just one wish. Please bring me the sacred relic so I can put it on my altar and help my practice. Now the son goes to India a few times. He gets, you know, he's busy with his personal business. He seems to continually forget his mother's request and he comes back several times empty-handed and she, she just kind of gives up and he always says, oh, next time, mom, next time. And finally, he's almost back home when he remembers his mother's words and he just, you know, he thinks he can't go back to India. It's too far. And this time he says, you know, she, he actually says to himself, <coughs> Uh-oh. Uh-oh is Pali for uh-oh. Maybe it's Tibetan. <laughs> he says, I've forgotten again, and my mother's getting older, and in fact, she, you know, she might have even died, because in those days, a long journey was like a long retreat. You know, you didn't have all these cell phones and connectivity, and, and so in the long months of a journey like the long months of a retreat, I mean, things can happen, and he didn't know. So he just couldn't come home empty-handed again. So by the side of the road, he saw a dog rotting carcass. And so what he did was he got down and he pulled one of the teeth out of the dog's skull, and then he polished it on his chuba, and he wrapped it in silk brocade, and he thought, she'll never know. And it won't, you know, it won't cause any harm. It's for good cause and this lie. So when he got home, his mother was in the kitchen making momos. And he said, Mom, guess what I brought you from India? And she was, um, she was so happy. She said, you finally remembered. And he said, I brought you a Buddha's tooth. And she was just like, wow, you know, I really thought you might bring me some dirt that the Buddha you know, from the, maybe where he walked, and this is so sacred. I mean, she was really happy. And she um, put it on her altar. She had a beautiful altar made, and she uh, performed prostrations to the tooth, and she did um, addressed prayers to the tooth, and she made offerings to the tooth, and she sat and meditated on the tooth, and Soon all the villagers were coming over and they were filling the house and everybody was venerating the tooth. And the son was, you know, he was happy. Um, in fact, the whole village seemed to be getting happy because they had this incredible relic. I mean, it just really uplifted the whole village, not just the lady. And then one day he was passing the room and a beam of light came out. And when it landed on somebody old they would be young again. And when the light landed on somebody sad, they would be happy again. And when it landed on somebody poor and destitute, they would suddenly be rich. What's up with this? He asked his mother. What is going on? She was churning butter. And she said, well, what do you expect of a Buddha's tooth? And this story, you know, it's really a story about the power of devotion. And it's said that when at a very advanced age, um, his mother died, that she attained a rainbow body as indicative of her great realization. 
So the mind of this woman through her devotion had changed the dog's tooth into a Buddha's tooth. And of course, the moral of the story is that we can do this too. Last night, uh, Leela talked about Howard Thurman. And she didn't mention Howard Thurman lived in Boston for a long time. He was a mentor to Martin Luther King Jr., to Maya Angelou, to many others. And (coughs) he was considered one of the greatest preachers, actually, of the 20th century. And he not only said, follow the grain of your own wood, which I think Leela said last night. No? She says she didn't. I imagined it. It was... Um... Anyway, his, he had a meeting, I think it was 19... 1936. He had a meeting with Mahatma Gandhi, and um, in 1949, he wrote his best-known work, Jesus and the Disinherited, which laid the foundation for the whole nonviolent civil rights movement. And um, he was dean of the March Chapel at BU, and when he died in 1981, which I vividly remember, his loss was very keenly felt. But the quote that I wanted for you for this talk is, there's something in every one of you that waits and listens for the sound of the genuine in yourself. It is the only true guide you will ever have. And this devotion to the genuine is, it's where we are practicing from, really. It's not something we're aiming for. So to come back to what the Buddha said to Ananda, these uh, six principles that would sustain the Sangha and the practice after the Buddha died. He talked about offering metta, devoted metta, with acts of body, speech, and heart, mind, He talked about generosity, uh, about dana, offering. And he talked about sila, living, well, basically the way we are, you know, following the precepts as best we can. And the highest uh, recommendation from the Buddha was about a noble view of life, having a noble view of life, like uh, what Nisargadatta was saying about desire isn't the problem, it's the narrowness of our desires so often. So to really desire a noble and uh, wise view of life, of uh, a full, whole life, um, that was his highest recommendation. He said, possessing in common with one's companions the fullness of a noble view of life that is wise and whole. And so I wanted to tell you a story about my mom and me because it, I feel that it was, it's a, it was a hard story, but it really not only embodies a kind of devotion, but I think to this, um, this larger, wiser view of life that came from it. <coughs> I'm just hesitating because sometimes when I wait a moment, the cough passes. So I don't want you to think I'm feeling in any way awkward in speaking to you. The hesitation is not the hesitation of the fluorescent light. It's the hesitation of allowing the moment, the impulse to cough 
often it can pass if I don't do it. Um, in fact, one student in this retreat said, he said, you're like a cow with a cowbell. We always know where you are. Because, <laughs> because we can hear you. <laughs> um, so most people I've heard say, you might, when my mom died, she was my second parent, so my last parent to die. And a lot of people say that it's really hard when your last parent dies because then you feel like an orphan and because there's no one standing between you anymore and your own death. And, but for me, it was really not like that. It, it, it didn't feel like that. It felt more like um, watching a whole library of unique, rare, irreplaceable books just sink beneath the sea or like losing your whole lifetime of handwritten diaries or knowing that somehow whole families or whole villages are gone from some you know natural disaster or holocaust or something or seeing pictures of a whole species that's gone extinct and there's um just this sense of I'll never see them. I'll never see them ever. And just feeling heartbroken more that we'll never be together again in a life. And so I experienced a kind of irretrievable loss of shared history and memories and just family life. And I don't know who can bear this without some refuge, really. I mean, who can we love and hold on to forever? And who will really love us forever? Um, And my mom, of course, we all have difficulties, some with our mothers, but I was lucky that my mother, in the later part of our relationship, certainly the last years of her life, she was just really happy to see me. And so there was somebody, I don't have a dog, so there was somebody who was always, you know, really happy (laughs) to see me, um, no matter what. And um, uh, I mean, i just tell you a really quick story. Like when, when I first came to L.A., it was just to have a visit, and I was staying in a friend's It was this sort of little remodeled wing of a house, but you had to go through the garage to get into it. And my first night there, I was unpacking my suitcase. And it was very late. It was about 11.30 at night. I had on a t-shirt. It was hot. So all I had on was a t-shirt. And I went out in the garage to get something. And what I didn't realize is that the door would lock uh, behind me when it closed. And I really didn't know. So the door slammed and locked. And I was in the garage in my T-shirt at 11.30 at night. I didn't really know where I was yet. And to make a long story short, I found some old clothes in the garage. Some old, like, man's pants. and (laughs) I mean, they were really gross. And I found, like, this really gross blanket and I just curled up and slept for a few hours in the garage and then in the morning I kept thinking see I kept thinking with dawn I'll see which direction the sun is rising and I'll get some idea of where I am but in LA there's so much light pollution that it's sort of light I mean you can't really see that anyway you have to wait you can't exactly from there I couldn't see it but finally I just figured out which way was the ocean and I walked there and it took me about an hour and a half maybe but I walked to where my mother lived because I knew how to go um, along the ocean to get there I didn't know the streets and so I came to her door it was by then about six in the morning and I looked I was barefoot and you know wearing these horrible things and really bedraggled 
and she opened the door, and all she said was, Hi, honey! (laughs) It was, you know, not like, Oh my God, look at you! Or usually she would make some comment about my clothes, or but she, I had trained her not to do that when she saw me. <laughs> I said, "If you want to see me often, please don't comment on my hair, my clothing, my weight, my you know anything." Um, so all she said was, "Hi, honey," <laughs> beaming. Anyway. Um, We suffer because we misperceive, taught the Buddha. And then, like teenagers, we rebel against our misperceptions and feel defensive and alone. We want to be free. We want so badly to be free. But the I who wants freedom can never have it. This I, to be the subject of everything, it has to make an object of experience. And separating from this ever-unfolding flow of life and pulling away, not getting too close, afraid of falling apart and dissolving into its ephemeral nature. This eye goes for refuge to the seeming safety of familiar perceptions of life and love. And like a teenager, she thinks um, she knows Like teenagers think they know their parents and everything else, of course. Um, But the I, that view of others can become really flat and static and distorted. It's as though um, the impression, when in that state, it's as though, it's like imagining ourselves sailing out, um, drifting farther and farther away from shore while all those we love kind of recede from view, you know, it's really seasick feeling, seasick on the just endless waves of um, change. And we like stare at the horizon, you know, gazing at it, (coughs) fixing our gaze, willing our eyes to believe that we're really standing still. Um, So this eye is longing for the stability of solid ground while all the while... um, swimming in this great sea of awareness all around us, in us, as us, intimately connected. The Buddha taught clear and single-minded awareness of what happens to us, in us, around and between us in successive moments. Successive moments of perception as a way to access bare attention to ourselves, to each other, and to our world. And he taught a way of riding these waves of experience with tenderness and devotion, actually with joy, alive in this big blue sea. The hardest thing for me when my mom was dying is that I couldn't ever say goodbye to her, even though I was with her a lot of the time, not all the time. And I couldn't say goodbye to her because she didn't want to acknowledge that she was dying. And so we could never talk about what was happening. And I think her generation just didn't feel the same need, perhaps, to talk about everything as my generation. But there was just so much that I wanted to say to her, to be able to acknowledge and thank her and... Um, I mean, she was my mother, my mommy, my... I just wanted to offer one deep, imperfect bow to her. Like, um, so John Keats, John Keats in his last surviving letter to his friend Charles, uh, he was saying goodbye because he knew he was dying. And the last line of the letter is, I have always made an awkward bow. I really wanted to make that awkward bow to my mom. And I felt it would be so much easier for me if we could just have an honest conversation. But she did not want to go there. And I think it was just too hard. You know, words and naming what was happening would just make it too sadly, starkly 
real. And um, in spite of our love, I felt we couldn't say goodbye and it broke my heart. But I also see it differently from this perspective now. And I admired my mom. My mom had a very happy way of living. She was always surrounded by flowers. She planted them everywhere and they always bloomed beautifully under her devoted care. And that was her way of dying too. She had these giant red amaryllis glowing at the foot of her bed. And she would just look and say, what a lovely display. I mean, it was just, you know, and out of respect, I... Uh, surrendered to her way because I knew that denial was part of what supported her uh, her good cheer, you know, her uh, dignity. But even though I'm a grandmother myself, I still felt that child's dilemma, you know, that to break through her denial might somehow destroy her. And, um, and yet, uh, in the zone of her denial, I felt less real myself, unseen. And um, just like the depths of her pain were unseen by me. And she seemed kind of like a child to me, like, um, you know, hiding her eyes so that death would disappear. But of course, today I have to acknowledge I haven't died yet. So I don't know. A monk asked uh, Master Yunmen, what are the teachings of a whole lifetime? Of course, you know, this is like asking your teacher, what is your enlightenment? What, you know, this is your whole lifetime. What are your, what's your teaching? And Yunmen answered, uh, one authentic word. Um, Another translation, an appropriate statement, but I like one authentic word. When I come from the perspective of oneness, of sameness, intimacy with what is, no separation, then I really can appreciate the wisdom of my mother's way. This appreciation is the middle way, where there's nothing um, to have to say or know, and to really be able to be yourself means to free yourself from the ego's need to have to do or be anything but who and how you are. Um, Free to live in the awareness of your very own ever-unfolding, shape-shifting, universal self. And when I come from the perspective of difference, then I feel the loneliness like this thick ancient wall between my mother and me and it just silenced it, it it feels like yeah it just silenced me and from years of psychotherapy and dharma practice and i know just like you know that the only way out of these prison walls is through and the only way through the wall is to name it right to know it to um feel it fully, to slow into the experience. And you've heard all this, you know, just explore just what is, that this too is just what it is, what life is, and this too will pass away. So when I put, you know, mom and me and um, my loneliness and her way and my way and how different we are and when I put it all outside of myself, like objects to think about and have emotional reactions to, of course, I'm diminished. And so is she. Uh, the wall is really rock solid then, and I'm encapsulated in my emotional thought world, you know, just like stuck. You know this feeling, you're just stuck inside your own sad skin at a moment like that. But when I see that my skin and everything inside it is part of who I am, but it's only a part of the whole mandala, the whole enchilada. The whole mandala encompasses the universe, this endless dimension, universal life, this life of all worlds, expressed as you and expressed as me. We know our spiritual practice is for awakening 
for making peace with our own life and death. But how to do this is a really big question. It's a huge question. Sitting with my mom as she was leaving, life was sad and scary. And when she was suffering, there were just lots of times when I did not know what to do. And I kept telling myself, her body knows how to do this. You know, like labor and birth. Her body knows how to do this. At some point in our lives, all of us will answer that question. What are the teachings of a whole lifetime? You know, what did we learn in this retreat? What do we learn in this life? Uh, do we know? Do you know who you are? Do you know who you aren't? And little by little, we realize that the answer is simply this fully lived, awakened life. So mom was actually engaging the monk's question in her way, just like you and me. Suzuki Roshi defines Buddhism, we just do what we should do, like eating supper and going to bed. This is Buddhism. So simple, huh? So complete. Breath by breath, moment by moment, living our lives uh, sincerely and devotedly. And ready or not, my mom was not dying when the time comes. This is what the Buddha did for a whole lifetime. He did it for a whole lifetime. And, you know, my mom lived her life her way. And the reason she wasn't ready to die is that she loved her life. So that's not such a bad thing. The Buddha's whole life, he did just this, just teaching and learning all the way. So let's just sit for a moment. This is a paraphrase of Samantabhadra's admonition from Zen Master Shenyan. This day has passed. Our lives, too, are closing like fish with little water. Life will not last. So let's practice with pure devotion and be mindful of impermanence. Thank you, everybody. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.